chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Fordata, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Fordata. I use their website hosting services. And I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. I just wanted to let you know that my next course, Six Weeks to Abundance with the Joyful Frugalista, starts the week of the 19th of October. To book in for that, there are limited places. Please go to my website, www.joyfulfrugalista.com. Look for the shop and sign up. I would really love to have you on board. It's such a transformative course that's run over six weeks with Zoom, a Facebook group, and other course materials. Hello, Frugalisters, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest and someone whose work I really admire so much. Welcome, Effie Zahos. Hello, Serena. I'm actually excited to be on your podcast too. I feel like I know you through, um, (laughs) I, I guess, my days when I was editing Money Magazine. I do know your work and very proud of what you've achieved. Well, thank you. That means an awful lot to me because you're certainly someone that I really admire and you've done so much, particularly in terms of having conversations about money, about getting women talking about money. So first, I probably should introduce you and let my listeners who don't know who you are, because most will know who you are, but some might not, explain a little bit about your background. So you've had over two decades of helping everyday Australians understand their money. And back in 1999, I believe, you helped kickstart Money Magazine and you were editor until 2019. And currently you are editor at large at CanStar and you're also a well-regarded financial commentator. So you're regularly in the media talking about money. And you're author of several books, including one which we're going to talk a little bit about today, which is A Real Girl's Guide to Money from Converse to Louis Vuittons. Does that pretty much summarise your career? <laughs> I will take it. Yes, it does. It does. It seems so simple the way you say it. I, I guess it is simple. It felt, I fell really naturally in, into this area. I mean, obviously, I had a, a passion for it. I, I started, I did a Bachelor of Economics at Queensland Uni, so I'm a Gold Coast chick. But don't judge me. Please don't judge me on that. I do love the Well, I have Gold Coast family and I'm also a UQ graduate. So we're probably related. And then I fell into to, to banking. And then from banking, I moved into, I guess, media through Paul Clitheroe, really the, the godfather of financial literacy and kind of fell into that. And the interview process itself, actually, is a story I have that was very interesting in the sense that I remember when I went to him, it was a huge pay cut coming from banking. Back then, a graduate trainee was earning quite a lot, doing quite well. And I remember Paul saying to me, I'm going to give you your best money tip you've ever received. Mm-hmm. And this is an interview. 
And I was really young, wet behind the ears, eager to hear, what does this God have to say? And it was basically, Effie, it, it's not what you earn that counts. It's what you spend. And I sat there and listened to it. I thought, that, that's gold. It's simple. It makes so much sense. It's not what you earn that counts. It's what you spend. Mm. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then he said, look, it's for that reason I'm going to give you this job but at half your salary. <laughs> <laughs> not sure if he's taking advantage of his own advice there. <laughs> and I went, what? Yeah, he hooked me. Uh, he got me in. I, I did do that virtually. But, look, I've never looked back, never looked back. I'm glad for the sake of myself and other people who love your work that you haven't looked back because <laughs> I think you might have been wasted behind a desk in the banking sector, although I'm sure professionally you would have done very well at it. But it is a really important thing what Paul Clitheroe has shared. It isn't actually how much you earn, it's how much you save. And I've seen that so many times in my own life. In my public service career, I, I have people who I work with who were higher than me, who earned more money than me, who had double incomes. But yet they'd suddenly say, oh, yeah, one day we might buy a house. And I was like, really? Like you, you, don't, you don't have your own home? And they're like, oh, yeah, we can't afford a deposit. And I'm like, really? Like you earn so much more than me. Like what's going on here? And so I guess I've got to ask the question of you, what is going on? Yeah. I guess I have learnt through over this period is that money has got more to – there's more to money than dollars and cents. There's, there are reasons why we do things. And I've collaborated with, with several – behavioural economist, one in particular uh, that I used for the, the last book and this new book that's going to come out, Phil Slade, behavioural economist, and digging deep down into why do we do things? Why mm. is it that you can be better at, say, you know, let's say you're on 60000 a year and you can do more with that than, say, someone on 80000 a year? What are those triggers that make you to spend? Why am I fearful of jumping in and investing? So that, you know, fear of missing out is bad, but so is fear of jumping in. Mm. I mean, the two can be just as bad as each other. There are lots of reasons why we do what we do when it comes to money. And then that then translates into relationships and how we set up things and our arguments with our partners, or maybe you live <laughs> happily ever after. Who knows what happens in each household? But there's a lot of insight that we need to have and the conversations, which is what the first book I wrote was all about. We have these conversations with ourselves. I know I do. Mm. And sometimes I can get angry with myself as to why did I do that? I know better. And it's by starting those conversations, then we can put in fixes to these triggers to be better with our money. Yeah, I think that's really important because there's so much resilience that goes with this, isn't mm -hmm. it? Like there'll be times yeah. when you pay too much for things, you buy things you never end up using. Yeah. You miss the boat on investing, wish you had followed your instinct, yeah. invested earlier, invest yeah. in things yeah. and they, they go down. But yeah. over the long run, by choosing to save and invest, you'll end up okay. That's the theory, yes. That's the <laughs> That's theory. The theory. <laughs> I mean, no one would have imagined a pandemic happening, what we're seeing now. But look, I am I'm hopeful from what, what we're learning right now and what's coming out of this. And on the other side of this, I feel that a lot more of us are going to be so much more savvier. But having said that, I mean, look, my partner invests in commercial property. You would never have thought commercial mm. property would be a risk. Never, never, never. But what we're seeing now is tenants are unable to pay rent and it's a domino effect. No one would have picked that. I guess it is a case of the old rules apply diversify, take it easy, invest in what you know. I mean, I keep things simple. If I don't understand how it works, I'm not going to invest in it. And there's no, nothing magical about what I do. I guess at the end of the day, I am a journo. I'm on a salary. 
and I make best of use of what I do have. I mean, it goes back to it's not what you earn that counts, what you spend. But also, there's only a handful of things you can invest in. Obviously, yourself, number mm-hmm. one priority. And then from there, it is. Is it cash? Is it fixed interest? Is it property? Is it shares? And then do you go in yourself or do you go through, say, indirectly, through, so through an exchange-traded fund or a managed fund? Five things I just mentioned then, five asset classes. It's not that complicated. I have to say, actually, I'm not a financial advisor, so I better get that out there, put a disclaimer. <laughs> Neither am I. Yeah, definitely not a financial advisor. So this is not skewed to be advice, but more information. The more information you have, the more empowered you will be. And that information is actually a fixer to a trigger because a lot of us are scared to do the next step because we're just not quite sure what it is. So if we can fuel ourselves with that information, we can then do the next step. I really love how you included investing in yourself as a key asset class because that's often something that people overlook. And especially with the high cost of tertiary education these days, it must be a hard decision for a lot of young people to make. Yeah. I have a daughter who's 19 and she's second year of uni now. She's doing a double degree commerce and engineering. It's funny. I invested in her. So for her, it was her education. I've now drawn the line. The university fees are hers. She will have a ridiculous debt when she finishes her degree. But I also feel putting that responsibility on her is great because I tell you what, Serena, she's not failing. Mm. She knows if she fails, it's going to cost her another semester because she feels the pain that if this degree <laughs> gets brought out to six, seven years, each year is costing her. I feel that responsibility in some way is great. But you're right, we are bringing up uh, a generation that before they even hit the workforce, whether they choose to go to uni, who cares if they don't? I have a son that probably won't go to, to uni, but they're coming out of the educational system with debt. Mm. And depending on how good we do our roles with some bad money habits. Yeah, no, thank you. That This is an issue too. I'm a mother of two children who are a lot younger. They're not quite university age, but I do think about what their future is and, you know, should I be pushing them into university if that's not where they yeah. want to go? Because yeah. it is quite a big financial commitment. And I used to think that the US was crazy expensive and we would never be like that. But actually, we're not too far different these days. No, depending on what the course, we have seen some changes. What we are seeing now is because of the unemployment rate, which, mind you, came out today and it wasn't as bad as we probably all thought. But nonetheless, there are people unemployed. There are people hurting and quite a lot. It's, you know, mm. the Treasury's go to 10%. Upskilling. I'm noticing a lot more of us are upskilling. TAFE has seen an increase in a number of courses, but at the same time, unfortunately, we're seeing some courses become more expensive than others. Uh, Look, I've got to say, sometimes being old is great. I managed to get my degree and not pay a cent for it. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a plus for being old. Yeah, well, I did have to pay some for mine, but I, I, (laughs) I hear you. I thought it was expensive at the time, but I'm glad I'm not doing that now. I want to go back to your book, or at least one of your books, which is A Real Girl's Guide to Money from Converse to Louis Vuittons, and say that I'm a huge fan of that book. And also to say that one of my girlfriends was a little bit disappointed you didn't actually (laughs) talk about Louis Vuittons in the book. So, of course, I have to ask, do you own a pair or several pairs? Yes, I do. (laughs) Do I own several? Look, I tell you what. Those shoes are pretty narrow. I've got a wide foot. So unfortunately, I don't own a lot, which is probably good for my hip pocket. I probably have, I think I've only got two now. I sold the other two. Look, the book was more about from Converse to Louboutins in the sense of this is where I started. I started with sneakers. 
And then I moved through my life and started, and I can make an analogy with the shoes. I can afford these ridiculously expensive shoes, but I've gone back to Converse. I've gone back to Converse in the sense of they're probably more comfortable. (laughs) And now some common sense has come into my brain in the sense that it's okay to splurge, but everything for me must be in moderation. I need to tick off my goals. I need to do this and that and so on. So that was the theory behind that cover with the book. But look, I really do thank Sex and the City for enabling me to um, come out of the closet, I guess, <laughs> with my fetish for shoes. And I'm yet to meet a woman that doesn't have a fetish for shoes. Well, there's a few who don't, but yeah, even I, you know, <laughs> as a frugalist, I do have way more shoes than I probably should have. But I did yeah. want to touch on this, not just to ask about your fashion habits, but to say that <laughs> often I feel that women are stereotyped as being frivolous and bad with money and only spending money on fashion and shoes. Is this a fair characterization of women, especially young women? Are we frivolous with our money? Look, for me, it's a little bit hard to remain unbiased here because the people I talk to are interested in being better with what they have. So I'm seeing some savvy ladies come through. They may not understand everything, but they want to do better. So I think it is a bit of generalizing, stereotyping happening out there. I mean, do women spend more on shoes and clothing? Probably yes. But then men spend elsewhere in other areas that doesn't get reported like that. I must say, I think it was in 2019 when we had the Consumer Action Law Centre and the Financial Rights Centre that came out with, watch my nuts. It's, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to be able to stop laughing now. <laughs> Actually, watch your nuts, not my nuts. Watch your nuts. Even worse. If you haven't seen this little video, please get online, Google it and look at it. And they came out and it was targeted to men. And it was so refreshing to see this because men were actually abusing basically payday loans. So Watch Your Nuts was a campaign aimed at men to teach them that these payday loans are the lender of last resorts. And they were changing kind of the the image and feel of these loans in the sense that Men were being targeted online on gambling sites. They're more likely to be gambling online and using these loans as okay, an, a, you know, an okay way to say, hey, I'm going down to see the AFL in Melbourne or I'll just get this, it's no problem. They're lifestyle loans. Mm. When clearly we know they're the most expensive type of loan out there and they are the lender of last resort. So it was great to see that there was a campaign targeting men because we always tend to say women shop too much, women are hopeless with money. And that's not the case. That's not absolutely not the case. I think men and women have different vices, but I know a lot of men that love shoes and shop as well. <laughs> so yeah, there is a bit of generalisation in that for sure. Are we talking enough about money? We're going into this unusual year 2020. Well, actually, we're in the second half of it now. And it's really been quite unprecedented what's happening. And there are a lot more discussions now, I think, about the yeah. importance of saving. But are we still talking enough about money as a society in Australia? I think for a lot of us, this is the first time that we've felt pain. The first time, a lot of us, the first time we've seen a recession. Supposedly, you need three to six months in an emergency account. Supposedly, do we have that? Absolutely not. I mean, we only have to look at what happened with early release of super. That was used as our emergency fund. And majority of people that took that out were younger people. I think the average amount was $7,700-odd. It has been a huge lifeline for people who have not had an emergency fund. Now, putting aside what impact that's going to have in the future, was it good Was it good public policy? Time will tell. Yeah. I've got my own 
opinion on that. But we clearly weren't ready for something like this. And I think moving forward, we are going to be a lot savvier. I know at CanStar, I have the luxury that I can do some projects with CanStar to help with financial literacy. And one that I did was the money makeover, an eight-week money makeover. Right during lockdown for, for most of us, it was it was free. Each week you'll get an email, you get a challenge, you do that this week and then move on. And very simple things, but it was taken up so well, which just goes to show people were looking for ways to improve their situation. And you can only improve your situation in two ways. You've either got to earn more money or spend less. Mm. I can tell you it's harder to earn more money. It is harder to earn more money. There's only one of you, only a certain amount of hours in the day. You can't have five or six jobs, though some people will. It's easier to cut back. And that's what I saw a lot of people do through that program, cutting back. For some of us, I know, Serena, you live and breathe this, but for other people, never thought about questioning their car insurance, Mm. never thought about questioning their kid's mobile phone if they've got it. Actually, why does my kid need a mobile phone in lockdown? Maybe I'll turn it off now. (laughs) There were all these things happening during that period that kind of awoke the senses, the financial senses for a lot of people. And I was ecstatic because... Now it's not going to be a case where your bill comes and you just pay it. I'm hoping people will learn these money lessons moving forward that, you know what, I'm actually just going to check. Can I do better here? Is this the right thing for me? I'm going to pick up the phone and ask for a better deal. I'm seeing a lot more of that now, which is great. Yeah, and I think it is a mind shift. I think myself included, traditionally, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to have this professional career. I'm going to have this amazing career or this job and I'll just work harder at that. I'll earn more and that's going to fix everything. But sometimes on the path to that, you can get so busy that you're not attending to your personal finances. You're eating takeaway because you're too busy to cook. You're not ringing around to get the best deal on your insurances. You probably don't even know what the rate is on your home mortgage, or maybe you don't even have a home mortgage for various reasons. It's a bit of a trap, isn't it? In pursuing a career to earn more money, you can end up spending more money because you're so busy pursuing the career. That is spot on, that whole vicious cycle. The more you earn, then you outsource a lot of things because you just don't have time yeah. to do it. And you've really got to rein it in and play a lot smarter. I mean, outsourcing is fine. I mean, I have a rule. If I'm going to outsource it, then I've got to earn double the money that I'm actually paying them. If I can make double the money in that hour that's outsourcing, then fine. If you can't, well, then you're not playing the game right. Yeah, and that's actually something I'm struggling with in a startup because I'm sort of at that stage where I'm doing everything myself. And there are some areas where I'm actually better off outsourcing so I can do more things that I'm naturally better at. It is a bit of a mindset shift. And as a frugalista, I'm always a bit like, oh, I'll just save money here. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. And But yeah, you do have to think strategically about how I'm managing my finances, how I'm managing my career, how I'm managing my family, how it all fits in. And that's interesting. I saw some data come out from Airtasker yesterday, I think it was, And the increase, I think they saw a 48% increase in the request for small business skills. So 21% jump in people building websites, people wanting, say, Excel or whatever case may be. So they've seen an increase in the number of entrepreneurs come out of this. And that's going to breed a whole other type of, I guess, situation in the sense that if you're employed by someone, they pay you super, it ticks along and you've got the protection of holiday, sick day, and so on. Well, technically you do. (laughs) So now we're looking at this situation where a lot of people are setting up their own business, and they've got to be mindful that it is probably the the greatest thing to do, but it's not easy. You also need to then think about, well, what is my long-term investment too? Just investing in the business on its own without, I'm a great believer of super, 
Do you add to super? Will you invest elsewhere instead of super? There's going to be a change in mind shift, I think, there because so many of us are setting up our own businesses. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. And I've got a separate sister business now, the Joyful Business Club, which is all about supporting women, particularly who are in business or want to be in business. It's in its early stages. But it's all those sorts of questions. And I guess a big question for me too is, well, what happens with my super? Now, I'm very blessed that I have very good superannuation as a former Commonwealth public servant. My husband has even better super than me. So as a couple, we're already in a very good position regarding super. But when I earn money from my new business and from doing things I love through the Joyful Frugalista, I'm like, well, what are the advantages for me of putting into super versus reinvesting it in my business now? It's hard. And I don't think there's actually much discussion or enough discussion about what sole traders or small startup companies can be doing within super. And I think the answer usually is that they just don't contribute. Yeah. And then leads a lot of businesses later. If the business didn't come to fruition afterwards, then what what for your investment? Exactly. I mean, that's where you definitely need some good advice. I mean, I can say, one of my favourite calculators out there is uh, Super Detective and basically you type in the age you were born and it will actually tell you, this is from ASFA, it will actually tell you the amount of super you should have based on your age. So I do urge any, everyone going there, type it in there because you'll see that hopefully you're on track. There's a certain amount of money we should have in our super for a comfortable retirement versus what we actually do have. And i give you an example. I checked this out this morning. If you're, say, 35, you should have 93,000 sitting in your super fund right now to give you that comfortable retirement that ASFA says that you need about 500 and, is it 545,000 in capital to earn that income. And that assumes you own your own home. But unfortunately, women have about 58,000 and men only have about 74. So we are behind there. And as we get older, the gap is bigger. Um, of course, because when you're 55 plus, you might not have had SG contributions when you started work as opposed to the younger people coming through. So it's a great little calculator to have a play with. Look, whatever your thoughts on super at the moment, for me, it's still probably one of the best wealth creating strategies we have in Australia. And that's because it ticks off all the boxes for me. Dollar cost averaging, your money's drip fed in there. It's a long-term investment technically, and you've got the tax perks. You're taxed at 15% instead of your marginal tax rate. So for me, it's a no-brainer. I'm sure your listeners may have their own opinions on it. (laughs) And until it still stays that way, I know we're waiting for the retirement income review to come out. The government's sitting on that. And that's going to look at the three pillars. How does the pension talk to the super? How does that then talk to self-funded retirees? Because they're not talking to each other at the moment. It's a schmozzle. It's a mess. So I get the frustration with super, absolutely. But there's still merits to it. So I hope it's not completely destroyed. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. Look, I'm really glad you raised super because this is actually a divisive topic amongst younger people, particularly those in the FIRE, financial independence, retire early community. I've had, well, not quite arguments, but it's been raised on panels where I've been the only one saying, yes, super is good. Now, that said, I'm on record for having (laughs) recently withdrawn a small amount of money out of my super. You wrote something for us at Kent's. That's right. So a small, (laughs) small amount for a strategic reason, which was to create a buffer during uncertain times. But certainly the bulk of my wealth and my husband's wealth is through superannuation. And we're on particular schemes that are not open to the general public. So I'll be on record with that too. But I was very slow myself to recognize the key benefit of that. Yeah. What I'm hearing from a lot of younger people, particularly I speak with who share things with me is they say things like, it's my money. All the rules are going to change anyway. And 
I, I don't trust it. I'll never get it anyway because I'll be too old or I won't be alive <laughs> or uh, I know better how to invest my own money. So I'd prefer to invest my own money in ETFs and I want it now. Let me say this. You will get old faster <laughs> than you think, okay? Because I thought I'd never get old and I'm here. The reason I guess I like super, and there's some of those are valid points, although when you look at the results of self-managed super funds, how they've performed compared to, say, a retail fund, industry fund, they haven't outperformed them at the moment. But horses, of course, each person can do something different, of course. The reason I like it is pretty simple, Serena, because unfortunately, a lot of us, while we have good money intentions, if we're not forced to do something, we won't do it. Yeah, that's true. It's the same reason home ownership. You know, home ownership, if you did the sums versus how long is it taking you to pay off your mortgage versus if you invested outside of the home, you probably may be better off investing outside the home. I hate to say this, but it forces us. The mortgage forces us to save. It's kind of a reverse saving account. And for a lot of people who don't have a mortgage, they'll probably blow their money. And the same with super. You've got SG contributions. It forces you to put money away. Because imagine if you didn't have that, would you have that money in your account? Probably not. No, well, maybe. Might have it in property or others. Yeah, well, some of us do and, and some of us may not. So it's for the very simple reason is that for most people that aren't savvy or are afraid or, or, or just wouldn't do anything, it gives them some kind of cushion. That's why I like it. Mm, well, fair enough. Canstar. Perhaps let's talk a bit about your role there. So CanStar obviously is a platform people can go to when they're looking at different financial products. Is that yeah. how you would describe it? Yeah, look, I, I've known CanStar, oh my goodness, when I was a product manager in a bank. I remember having to supply them <laughs> with data back then. It's ironic how it goes full circle. And I've used their data all through my career as editor. Back then of the Money Magazine, we came up with a concept of best of the best and got them to crunch the data. So they're Australia's largest financial comparison site. And I think it's important that people use the tool to compare. The good thing with it, you can change the filters, untick the tick and check the whole lot out if that's what you want to do. I just think, like I said, knowledge is power. Mm. Take that and negotiate that with your providers. Use all the information you want. And at the end of the day, you make your decision. Don't let anybody else make a decision for you. You make your decision. And it gives consumers the ability to be able to call up their providers and say, hey, I saw this or I saw this or I didn't see this or whatever. Why am I paying this amount? That's kind of the good part about comparing products. And like I said, for myself, it's been able to do these money makeovers. I have a newsletter that comes out every Monday, which I know you're written for, called Money Mondays. And I have a bit of a rant. <laughs> I do like the rant. I hope people are liking the rant. And I'll look at things. So, for example, I had a look and just say, look, if the government did bring the tax cuts forward, what does that mean? Unfortunately, it doesn't mean much for low-income earners. Mm. So I'll have a bit of a spiel. And then basically I have four stories there. It's produced also by Maria Becchiaris, who I've worked with for most of my life. And we go out to the best of the best, I guess, economists, experts like yourself in your field. And we get four great stories that we send out every Monday. And that's free to uh, subscribe to. Called Money Mondays with Effie Zahos. Wonderful. And where can people find that? Your Money Mondays with Effie Zahos, you'll go straight there and you'll be able to just sign up. And yeah, I'll see you in the inbox, so to speak. <laughs> Fabulous. And that sounds like it's a great free resource. And I'm going to sign up myself. It's like, why didn't I know about this? I should have known <laughs> about this. I'm kicking myself. I have a final question for you, Effie, yeah. which is 
Do you have a favourite frugalista tip? Now, I know you shared Paul Clitheroe's tip earlier on saving. Yeah. But is there something that you do that is good for you in terms of saving money? Okay, look, that is my favourite one because I've gone through all my life with that. There's one that's kind of a bit of empowering in the sense that the grass may be greener on the other side, but chances are it's fake. So I just want you to remember that. Don't worry too much about what everyone else is doing. Worry about what yourself, what what you I think that's really, that's really important. That's a big one. Yeah. For me, I guess I have uh, the rule, if I'm saving money, sleep on it. I never make a decision straight away. I'll sleep on it and then the next day I'll make a call. I also never put my credit card details or any payment details online because that one-click-through model is a behavioural thing that they want us to fall for. So as soon as you've got everything logged in, you just have to press one button and you've bought it. So by having to physically take out your details and type it in, it's another barrier. So I never subscribe to a one-click-through processing model. Never save your details online. It just makes purchasing things too easy. That is probably a good one for me. Like I'm frugal, as you know, but an interesting thing is during this lockdown where and where yeah. I've been working from home as well, I've got to know the delivery man very well. So he comes <laughs> every week or so. And the first few times I said, look, because it's always the same person, Look, I really, I don't buy much online. I really don't. I really don't, you know, feeling a bit guilty about it. And then the next time I was like, oh, yeah, I really don't buy much online. But now I'm just like, yeah, it's me again. (laughs) It's interesting. I mean, Amazon, I think, developed that click through. I hope I'm not wrong. I'm pretty sure they did. Because what the research found is that a lot of people do shop online, but leave it in their basket and have no intention of shopping. It's just that behavioral fix, that kind of you want the adrenaline, put everything in your basket, but you're never going to buy it. So they thought, well, how is this? A, how can we stop people from walking away from this basket? What makes it easier to then get to the next step? So this one-click model came through, and now I believe it's just standard practice. And definitely during COVID, I mean, we have seen spending go down in certain areas. But when you look at online shopping, I know NAB produces a great report that comes out. Online shopping's gone through the roof, mm. and especially in Victoria over this period. So uh, if you do get caught out with that, maybe that's something to think about. Yeah, well, I, I should add it's it's not a problem and it's um, most of the things are no, actually... Not you, sorry. No, I'm no, it's actually mainly hubby buying <laughs> different equipment things that we were due yeah. to buy anyway, but it's just kind of funny because, you know, I'm a frugalista, so I don't think I actually buy anything yeah, and yeah. have this, no, yes, well, yeah, yep, that's me again. <laughs> Well, thank you, Effie, so much. It's been such a delight to have you on here. So now people can find you at Canstar. Yeah, it can start. You can connect with me there. I'm, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Feel free to reach out. Always love hearing people's money woes or questions or tips. Love it because a lot of those can turn to story ideas for me too. So yeah, and you can check me out on today's show as well. Wonderful. That is fabulous. And look, I really appreciate your time and thank you for all the work you're doing on financial literacy. So thank I know you. it makes a huge difference to a lot of people, including myself. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thanks for introducing me to your listeners too. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You've got to accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between 